Hello. Good morning. Happy Sunday. Welcome to All About Women 2014 at the gorgeous Sydney Opera House. Lovely to have you here. My name is Natasha Mitchell from ABC Radio National. This is All Joy and No Fun, The Paradox of Modern Parenthood. Mobile's on silent or vibrate, which is a whole lot more fun. Uh, book signing afterwards. And also looking forward to coming to you for your questions and your argy-bargy. Don't hold back. We are giving you permission to enter the realm of the dark side this morning. The dark side of raising children. The shade alongside the light. The hell alongside the joy. The flip side of everything that is fabulous about parenting, but we'll get to some of the joy as well. And I really can't think of a better way to start than by uh, um, drawing upon Philip Larkin. And I'll, if you've brought your kids, and I cannot believe you would bring your children to this session, <laughs> brave soul that you are, I'll do a child-friendly friendly virgin. They feck you up, your mum and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you. But they were fecked up in their turn by fools in old-style hats and coats who half the time were soppy stern and half at one another's throats. Man hands on misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out as early as you can and don't have any kids yourself. <laughs> If that's what parents do to their children, what about what children do to their parents? That's the question Jennifer Senior uh, explores in this fantastic book, This Is Not Your Average Parenting Book, and, and people ha are relieved to read it or hot under the collar in equal measure, all joy and no fun, the paradox of modern parenthood. Modern parenthood is the key here. It's a New York Times bestseller. Jennifer is contributing editor at New York Magazine and she joins us from New York over the jet lag. Let's give her a big Sydney Opera House welcome. I fear this might slide. I think I'm going to put it somewhere else. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my God, I love Sydney. I'm madly in love. I'm not going back to New York, ever, <laughs> ever. Um, so thank you, really, truly. And also, it's beautiful outside, and I know it's been really gross outside, so the fact that you turned out is uh, it's just, it's very flattering. Anyway, so let me start. And I've been told that this thing is self-explanatory, and I'm just gonna assume that's true. Uh, when I was born, there was really only one book about how to raise your children. And it was written by Dr. Spock. Oh, hello. Hmm. Thanks, Is it self-explanatory, folks? Can I see, we have someone from technical, please? Yeah, that looks really good. <laughs> hello, folks. Yeah, he, he said it was like a circular doodad, and it, it is not circular that I can tell. <laughs> Hold that breath. Yes, hold that, sorry. Yeah. Ah, so see, that would have been a funnier joke if I had said, <laughs> it would have killed. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, so it was written by Dr. Spock, and then you're supposed to look at that and go, ha, 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 
Right, and, and I am supposed to say uh, that if you read enough child-rearing books and books about parents and children, that is a joke you are desperate to make. So thank you for indulging me. Okay, no, it was Dr. Benjamin Spock. Uh, and his book was called The uh, Common Sense Book of Baby and Child Care. It sold almost 50 million copies by the time he died. Today I, as the mother of a six-year-old, walk into my local bookstore and I see this. <laughs> and it is amazing the variety that one finds on those shelves. Um, there are books about how to raise... Oh, no, no, don't fail me, no. There we go. An eco-friendly kid, a gluten-free kid, a disease-proof kid, which personally I find a little bit creepy that you would even name your book that. Um, there are books about how to raise a bilingual kid, even if you speak only one language at home. There are books about how to raise a financially savvy kid and a science-minded kid and a kid who is a whiz at yoga. Short of teaching your gifted toddler how to defuse a nuclear bomb, there is pretty much a guide to everything. Now, I am sure that all of these books are well-intentioned. And I am betting that individually many of them are actually great, that they're terrific. Um, but taken collectively, I am sorry. I, I do not see help when I look at that shelf. I see panic. I see a giant candy-colored monument to our collective anxiety. And it makes me want to know, why is it that raising our children has become associated with so much anguish and so much confusion? Why is it that we are all at sixes and sevens about the one thing human beings have been doing successfully for millennia, long before you know, parenting message boards and peer-reviewed studies and paid experts came along. Why is it that so many mothers and fathers <laughs> um, think of parenthood and experience parenthood as a kind of crisis? Now, crisis might seem like a strong word, but there is data suggesting that it probably isn't. In fact, there was a paper of just this very name Parenthood as Crisis, published in 1957. Um, incidentally, my favorite line from this paper is when a mother tells the author of it, we knew where babies came from, but we didn't know what they were like. <laughs> and in the 50 plus years since this paper first came out, yeah, I know, um, <laughs> There has been plenty of scholarship documenting a pretty clear pattern of parental discontents. Parents experience more stress than non-parents. Their marital satisfaction is lower. There have been a lot of studies looking at how parents feel when they are spending time with their kids, and the answer, often, is not so great. Um, the most iconic study of this genre was done by Daniel Kahneman, a Nobel Prize-winning behavioral economist from Princeton. He's great. Um, Many of you might know this study because it became an instant classic when it was published in 2004. Uh, the, the design was very simple. He interviewed 909 Texas women, and he asked them to reconstruct what they did over the course of the day, and then to evaluate how much they liked what they were doing. And 
At the end, this is what was not so simple, or at least not so expected, what he found was that childcare ranked 16th out of 19 in pleasurability for these women. They didn't know that they were marking this down at the time. I mean, they, they had no idea what, you know, this is all unwitting. So things that ranked above childcare were um, vacuuming. I mean, like, the, <laughs> child, I mean, cleaning your house. Napping, which is to say losing consciousness was like actually more appealing. Um, <laughs> um, shopping, answering email. I mean, you know, almost everything clocked in higher. And, and I would just like to point out that these kinds of studies, looking at the moment-to-moment -moment affect of parents, have sustained, they've continued over the years. So that last year, I spoke with um, a researcher named Matthew Killingsworth, uh, who... He's doing this very imaginative project that's tracking people's happiness. And here is what he told me he found. Interacting with your friends is better than interacting with your spouse, which is better than interacting with other relatives, which is better than interacting with acquaintances, which is better than interacting with parents, which is better than interacting with children. Wait, wait for it. Who are on par with strangers? <laughs> This is social science, people. He was, I mean, this is not, yeah. Okay. But here's the thing. <laughs> I have been looking at what underlies these data for three years. And children are not the problem. Something about parenting right now, at this moment, is the problem. Specifically, I don't think that we know what parenting is supposed to be. The word parent as a verb really only entered common usage in 1970. It's been in the OED. It lay there dormant, and it was resurrected as a verb really in 1970. Um, so, uh, so what I would say is our roles as mothers and fathers have changed. The roles of our children have changed. We are all now furiously improvising our way through a situation for which there is no script. And if you are a jazz musician, then you know improv is great. But for the rest of us, it can feel like a crisis. <laughs> so how did we get here? How did we get to this place and enter this child-rearing universe in which there are no scripts to guide us? Well. For starters, there has been a major historical change. Um, until, you know, fairly recently, kids worked. <laughs> On our farms primarily, but also in factories, in mills, in mines, kids were economic assets. Sometime during the progressive era in the United States, which is to say between 1890 and 1920, um, we came to our senses and we put an end to this arrangement. We banned child labor, we recognized that kids had rights, and we focused on school instead. School became their new job, and thank God it did. But I'm going to point out that this only made a parent's role much more confusing. The old arrangement might not have been particularly ethical, or ethical at all, but it was reciprocal. We as parents provided food, clothing, shelter, moral education, whatever, to our children, and they in return provided income. But once kids stopped working, the economics of parenting changed. <clears throat> uh, kids became, in the words of one very 
brilliant, if slightly ruthless, sociologist, economically worthless, but emotionally priceless. Um, rather than working for us, we began to work for them. Because after just a few decades, as the world became more competitive and middle class wages began to stagnate, one thing became very clear. School was not enough if we wanted our kids to get ahead. So today, extracurricular activities are our kids' new work. But that's work for us too, because we are the ones who are driving them there, right? To soccer practice or whatever. Massive piles of homework are our kids' new work. But that's also work for us, because we have to check it. Um, there was a woman in Texas about three years ago, as I was doing my book research, who really broke my heart. She said something to me that, it just stopped me cold. She said, homework is the new dinner. That's how she spends quality time with her kids. The middle class now pours all of its time and all of its energy, all of its resources into its children, even though the middle class has less and less of those things to give. Mothers in the US, and I'm betting dollars to donuts, it's the same here, spend more time with their children now than they did in 1965, when most women were not even in the workforce. And this shift, I think, I'm sorry, this shift in emphasis has been reflected in our language. Back in 1965, if you stayed at home, what were you? You were a housewife. Emphasis on the word house. It was your job to keep a perfect house. You had to know the difference between oven cleaners and floor waxes and, you know, whatever. Now, if you stay at home with your child, what are you? You are a stay-at-home mom. Emphasis on mom. Now you have to be a perfect mother. It would probably be easier for us to do our new jobs and to be perfect mothers um, if we knew what we were preparing our children for. Uh, that's something else that makes modern parenting very confounding. We have no idea what portion of our wisdom, if any, is going to be of use to our kids. The world is changing so rapidly, it is almost impossible to say. And this was true, I should point out, even when I was a kid. When I was in high school, I was told that I would be at sea in the new global economy if I did not know Japanese. <laughs> and with all due respect to the Japanese, it totally didn't work out that way. <laughs> now there is a certain kind of middle-class parent who is obsessed with teaching their kids Mandarin. And maybe they are onto something, but we cannot know for sure. So, absent being able to anticipate the future, what we all do as good parents, is try and prepare our kids for every possible future we can think of, hoping that just one of our efforts will stick. <laughs> we sign them up for chess lessons, thinking, hey, maybe analytical skills will help. We sign them up for, you know, uh, team sports, thinking that uh, collaborative skills will help, you know, for when they go to Harvard and have to do their first case study. I don't know. We want our kids to be uh, science-minded and financially savvy and eco-friendly and gluten-free. <laughs> Though now is an excellent time to point out, I was not eco-friendly and gluten-free as a child. I ate pureed macaroni and beef. And you want to know what? I'm like doing okay. I, I, I hold down a steady job. I, I, you know, I, I, I pay my taxes. 
Um, I was invited to Sydney to speak to you guys, you know. And, and in fact, I am willing to stipulate that whole generations of people went on to raise families, start companies, teach Sunday school, do Nobel Prize winning science, eating this stuff. Like, it was okay. And I'm also willing to bet that when they were tender young toddlers, they're you know, they, they were not um, uh, going to kitty gymboree three times a week. And they were, their cribs were not stuffed with toys that would stimulate them and teach them the difference between gross motor skills and fine motor skills. Um, I should also point out that, um, you know, until the, 19, the late 19th century, do you know what kids' toys actually were? Found objects. They played with pieces of rope, broom handles. Dicks. I mean, this is where we've gone. But the presumption now is that what worked for me, or what worked for my parents, or for that matter, what worked for Abraham Lincoln is no longer good enough. So we all make a mad dash to that bookshelf because we think that if we're not trying everything, it's as if we're doing nothing. And we are defaulting on our obligations to our kids. So it's hard enough to navigate our new roles as mothers and fathers. Now I want to add to this problem something else. We have to navigate our roles, new roles, as, as husbands and wives, because the fact is most women today are in the workforce. And we have no rules, no norms, no scripts for what to do when a baby comes along, now that both mom and dad are breadwinners. Uh, this is something that the American writer Michael Lewis put very, very well once. He said that the surest way for a to start a couple fighting is for them to go out to dinner with another couple whose division of labor is like ever so slightly different from theirs <laughs> because the conversation in the car on the way home goes something like this. So, did you catch that Dave is the one who walks the kids to school in the morning? <laughs> Uh, without a script telling us who does what in this new world, couples fight. And you know what? Both mothers and fathers each have their legitimate gripes. But I think we should first start here and focus on mothers. Mothers, according to pretty much every study I can find in the US, are much more likely to be multitasking at home. While men, when they are at home, are much more likely to be monotasking. You find a man at home and odds are he is doing one thing at a time. <laughs> In fact, researchers at UCLA recently looked at the most common configuration of family members in middle-class homes. Guess what it was? Dad in a room by himself. <clears throat> According to the American Time Use Survey, mothers still spend twice as much time taking care of their kids as fathers do which I should point out is an improvement over my mother's generation. But I still think that one of the great wits of her generation, Irma Bombeck, a terrific domestic satirist, um, she said something that I still, in, in 1983, that I still think is particularly relevant today. So I'm gonna tell it to you now if I can remember it. Um, I have not been alone in the bathroom since October. I love that, and it's so true, oh my god. <laughs> so the fact is that mothers really do experience their time at home very differently from their husbands. 
Uh, they do more deadline-centered work, for one thing. Um, it is mothers who uh, feel obliged to have dinner on the table by 6 and then check the homework by 8 and then have the baths run by 8.30. Um, this is something else that I also was very surprised to find in the data, and it's very consistent. Mothers are the family disciplinarians, so they are chronically cast as the bad cops, which is hard. And this is especially true in the early, early years and in the adolescent years. So it's mothers who are disproportionately burdened with the, the task of looking at a toddler and saying, put on your shoes, put on your shoes. No, I mean it, really, put on your shoes. <laughs> and in the adolescent years, it is mothers, not fathers. And fathers readily concede this in surveys. I mean, in big longitudinal surveys with thousands of participants, that mothers are the ones who do this. During the adolescent years, they are the ones who regulate screen time, so that's TV shows and video games. And they're the ones who regulate friendships. Who is that kid? Do I know their parents? Where are you going? When are you coming home? That's up to moms. Most crucially, though, I think I want to point out that mothers feel an immense amount of internal, of internal pressures to be deeply engaged. Um, and I, I really I can't stress this enough. I can't tell you how many mothers told me, both while I was doing book research and just as I've been you know, talking to people around the country you know, in the US, how um, much pressure women feel when they come home to sort of immediately rip off their coat, go into the living room, and immediately get down on the floor and play with their children. It's the full saturation immersion version of parenting or bust. And I think the reason that they feel this way is that they are still contending with a lot of guilt. I think there's still tremendous ambivalence about women working. And I can give you a really interesting case in point in the United States. Right now, according to Gallup, which is our, one of our big survey institutions, I'm sure you know, um, we are, a record number of Americans now think that it is perfectly illegitimate uh, for a woman to be the primary breadwinner in a family. A record number of Americans are okay with that. A record number of Americans also think that someone should be home full-time with the baby. <laughs> How do you reconcile that, right? I mean, it's, you know, unless they think that fathers should be doing it, but I'm not sure that's what's coming out. And I do think that what one can certainly see is a very clear pendulum swinging pattern where sort of the more inroads that women make in the workforce, you do get this kind of countervailing, you know, pressure for them to be at home. The most interesting incidents that I can think of this, that I can think of in the United States was in the 1980s when there was this real spike in workforce participation from women. It was at exactly that moment that missing children started appearing on milk cartons all around the US. There was this intense anxiety that no one was watching the kids. It's when there, there was a proliferation of stories about daycares, being horrible places, about Halloween candy, being poisoned. There was this real ambivalence about women being out there and working. Now, let me also just say, men are suffering too under this arrangement. From their point of view, they are spending far more time with their children than their fathers ever did. And no one has given them a script for exactly how much engagement is appropriate now, right? They can't titrate it because everybody's arrangement is different. They also work more paid hours than their wives, so they come home really tired, and they think that they are entitled to their leisure prerogatives. And now, in the United States, it is men, not women, who report the most work-life conflict. 
which suggests to me that they really want to be good, involved fathers, but they are butting heads with institutions that don't want to give them time off, or bosses who feel uncomfortable with, you know, letting them take the afternoon off to go for a doctor's appointment or whatever it is. Um, and I also, just, I also want to add this. Um, if you think that traditional families are suffering, <laughs> now let's just stop and contemplate how non-traditional families are suffering without scripts. Families with two moms, families with two dads, single parent families, they are truly improvising as they go. Now, in a more progressive country, and forgive me here for capitulating to cliche and invoking, yes, Sweden, <laughs> the state would be, would provide more support for parents. There are countries that acknowledge the changing roles and shifting burdens and anxieties of mothers and fathers. Unfortunately, the United States, where I live, is not one of them. So in case you are wondering what the US has in common with Liberia and Papua New Guinea, it's this. We too have no paid maternity leave policy. We are one of eight known countries that does not. Sorry, page flipping. But the truth is, even if we became, you know, Norway or Sweden tomorrow, I think work-life balance would still be very difficult because here's yet another change. It used to be that if you got a phone call during dinner, let's say, from your employer, it could only mean one thing. You were a doctor. Now, thanks to texting and emailing and Facebook notifications, and don't get me started, you know, all of us have the ability to work all the time which means that we have the ability to feel guilty all of the time. I cannot tell you how many parents have spoken to me with tremendous guilt about their email. Because here's the great perversity. We now think that our kids are interrupting us when we're responding to our email and not the other way around. And again, there is no script for that. That was not an issue so much as 15 years ago. So, in this age of intense confusion, there is just one goal upon which all parents can agree. And this is whether we are hippie moms or tiger moms, whether we are helicopters or drones. <laughs> you might be able to tell I'm kind of a drone. Um, <laughs> uh, our, child, our children's happiness is paramount. That is the one thing we all agree on. The one mantra no parent ever questions is this. Oops, sorry, that's an email. Sorry, <laughs> skip that. All I want is for my children to be happy. We are all the custodians of their self-esteem. This is what it means to raise kids in an era when they are economically worthless but emotionally priceless. When I was in Texas, I remember talking to this woman who, Texas is, features, it's a big part of my book. Um, I remember talking to this woman, she was a mom of five, and I asked her what the hardest thing was about being a mom of five. And I thought she was gonna say to me exactly what you guys are probably thinking, which is, you know, economically it's really challenging, I can't make my mortgage, I can't find time to, you know, spend just alone with my husband, I can't find time to shower, whatever it was, you know, I was expecting something like that. What she said instead was that 
She was very anxious that she couldn't anticipate the feelings of one of her children, whom she considered more vulnerable. She was just terrified that she was an inadequate emotional seismograph for this kid. She wanted so badly for this kid to feel happy, and she felt like she was falling down on the job. And I don't want, I mean, please don't get me wrong. I think happiness is a beautiful goal, but I also think it is a very elusive goal for our children. Happiness and self-esteem, teaching that to kids is not like teaching them how to plow a field. It's not like teaching them how to ride a bike. It's not like teaching them how to do math. There is no curriculum for it. Happiness and self-esteem can be the byproducts of other things, but they really can't be goals unto themselves. A child's happiness is a very unfair burden to place on a parent, and it is a very unfair burden to place on a child. I also have to tell you, I think it leads to some really weird excesses. Um, we are now so anxious to shield our kids from the world's ugliness that we now protect them from Sesame Street. I wish I was kidding about this. But if you go out and you buy the first few uh, uh, episodes of Sesame Street on DVD, which I did out of nostalgia, you will see at the beginning a warning saying that the content is not suitable for children. <laughs> Can I repeat that? <laughs> the content of the original Sesame Street is no longer considered suitable for children. When asked about this by, by the New York Times, uh, a producer for the show gave a variety of explanations. Among them was the fact that in one skit, uh, Cookie Monster smoked a pipe <laughs> and then swallowed it. <laughs> And this was considered extremely poor modeling. But the thing that I, that really stuck with me is that she happened to mention along the way that she didn't know whether or not Oscar the Grouch could be invented today because she was concerned that he probably would be deemed too depressive. I cannot tell you how much this distresses me. You are looking at a woman who has a periodic table of the Muppets <laughs> hanging on her cubicle wall, okay? And now, the offending Muppet. That's my son, the day he was born. I was high as a kite on morphine. I had... <laughs> I had had an unexpected C-section, it really stank. Um, but even through my opiate haze, I do remember having one very clear thought the first time I held him. These are the, fir these are the first words I, I said to him ever. I, I whispered him them into his ear. I said, um, I will try so hard not to hurt you. It was the Hippocratic Oath, and I didn't even realize I was saying it. But you know, it occurs to me now that the Hippocratic Oath is a much more realistic aim than happiness. In fact, I think as any parent will tell you, it's awfully hard. All of us have said or done hurtful things that I think we wish we could take back. 
In another era, I don't think that parents expected quite so much from themselves. And I think it's really important that we remember that the next time we are staring with our hearts racing at those bookshelves. I'm not really sure how we create norms in this new world. But I do think that in our desperate quest to create happy kids, we might be assuming the wrong moral burden. It strikes me as a better goal, and dare I say a more virtuous one, to create productive kids and ethical kids, and to simply hope that happiness will come to them by virtue of the good that they do, and their accomplishments, and the love that they receive from us. That is one response to having no script. Until we have a brand new set of scripts, we just follow the oldest ones in the book. Love, decency, a work ethic and we let happiness and self-esteem take care of themselves. I am willing to bet that if we did that, the kids would still be all right. And so would we. Possibly, in both cases, even better. That's all I got. Goodness me. A chance for you to participate now. If you'd like to make your way to the microphones, please do. We'd like to be able to hear you. We are filming today. Uh, you can identify yourself if you want or just be who you are. Nameless. Uh, so, <laughs> microphone there, a microphone there. And uh, I guess I just want to get a sense. Who's, who is a parent? <laughs> who's not a parent? Okay. Great to have all of you in the yeah. room. Does this mean that Snuffleupagus is a sign of Big Bird's delusional thinking? <laughs> well, that came out and some Oscar time ago. And also, the Grouch has any anger management issues. He has total anger. Well, yeah, he's my favourite. Yeah, I know. He's bipolar, I guess. You know. <laughs> You know, that's very depressing. It's very depressing. No, I mean, I have to tell you the whole thing. And the warning label itself is like so serious. And a guy comes out and, oh, you know what? I mean, we're not even going to get into it. The, the re response to this book, and we did a, a national talk back on Friday on Radio National, you and I, yeah. and it was in, an incredible discussion. The calls were phenomenal. It was amazing. But the response I sense is varied. You either get people coming up to you in tears at the end of a presentation, or you get people responding uh, that this is also self-indulgent and as if even to acknowledge that, that the kind of miserable aspects of parenting is to desecrate the, the ground that your children walk on or is some demonstration that you don't really love your children. Do you get that mix? Because that's certainly a mix that we've, we've got in right. response. Um, let me be honest, no. If people have read it, no. It, there's, first of all, the, the families in that book are the middle of the middle class. They do their own childcare, they clean their own homes. I deliberately went for families who did not have gobs and gobs of means. So nobody in there sends their kids to private schools. No one in there, you know. They, I, and I certainly did very little research in New York because we all know that New Yorkers are nuts and that they, you know, have a lot of money. So, you know, or at least they can throw a lot of money at these problems, right? I mean, I, I love New York. I'm from that, you know, but... So I think actually, in point of fact, because I was... What my book does is try to anatomize the problem. I just try to hold a mirror up. It, I, I don't get tons and tons of pushback 
um, I don't get people saying you you complaining yuppies because it's it's really much more kind of anthropological than that. It's not a long-winded, breathless aria whinge, you know? It's it's different. I think if people only hear about what it is, like, certainly, you know, like, people will pop off about it, but I've had people actually take back their comments on Amazon going, sorry, finally read the book. Oh, it's good. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> it is really interesting that I think that, yes, like, at first blush, there might be this kind of um, recoil from it, but no, no, not so much. But you get profound relief. I d- because yeah. Because you are giving permission that, yeah. for people to say it like it really is yeah, for them. Well, yeah, and, that, and that's the thing. So my book is ordered chronologically so that, you know, you are looking at the way kids affect their parents at every stage of their lives. So when anybody, whenever anybody reads about another family, and there's always, like, some starring family in some chapter or a bunch of them, and they go, oh, my God, they, th- their kid says that to them too? Oh, I, you know, I thought it was only me. You know, it's cathartic, right? I mean, just to know, nobody knows where they are in the bell curve of experience. Mm. And everybody assumes that they're like an outlier somewhere here or there and not that they're kind of at the fat middle, uh, you know, and that's what I think is interesting. Let's take some questions. Make you, I know a lot of you will be thinking, oh, I really want to ask a question or make a comment, but I can't be bothered. <laughs> <laughs> disrupting the audience and and having to make my way through a crowd to get to the microphone, but please do it and everyone will part the oceans for you (laughs) in order to allow that to happen. So go for it. Thank you, sir. Jennifer and Natasha, thank you both very much. Ian Carboyd, Katoomba, Blue Mountains, uh, west of here. Where I won't get to go. I'm so upset. (laughs) Postnatal depression studies, dare I use the word, are indicating that men or fathers or dads are actually experiencing more postnatal depression than mums or women. Jennifer, I'd love to hear your comments on this. That is interesting. It's not... uh, Okay, it's not a very well-developed body of literature in the United States. I'm sure... I I don't doubt that it's there. And I don't... uh, Based on what I know... The depressive part for fathers comes earlier because they don't have they're, they're trauma they're traumatized earlier on in the pregnancy because they don't have the same physical connection to the child, and then the child comes along and it's tangible suddenly to them, so it becomes much more manageable and th- their kind of um, vagueness about the role is clarified. Whereas women, when they are often experiencing postpartum depression, it is a genuine response to a giant hormonal swing where your body is really undergoing some kind of hormonal transformation unlike almost any other that you'll go through again besides having gone through adolescence and perhaps going through menopause. Um, if, I mean, if that is a robust finding and it's been highly replicated, it's super interesting. And I would love to know who the men were and whether it is kind of connected to anxiety about you know, economics and about like what the costs will be. Or, and also what the time window was. How long were they doing it? Six months? A year out? Do you know, how long, do you know what the nature of the study was? No, no I don't. But I, I, I gather that at least part of the issue relates to the altered relationship between the man and the woman that, of course, eventuates during pregnancy and, of course, after the child's born. Mm. But, but the what of relationship? The, 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 the relationship. Oh, there's, yeah. There's, of course, a loss. Men often perceive a loss. Yes. And that's yes. something you talk about And I do, very I do much. indeed talk Thank about you. that, yes. In, in the book, that, that this is part of the whole dynamic of having children is that your relationship shifts radically. And it's even shifted totally. And, that, and, and there's been a, a number of studies that have looked at how much less time couples spend together 
Um, and, you know, it drops by about two-thirds, you know, the amount of couple time they have. And since the 1970s in the United States, couples used to spend 12 hours a week together, and now, this is if they've got kids, and now it's nine. So it's still declining, and, it, and that's, you know, already, that doesn't even take into account what it was like before when there was obviously nothing but couple time. So that contrast would make sense to me. Um, I would still love to know how long they looked after the man, you know, whether this was um, three months out, six months out, one year out. It'd be okay. really interesting to see the design, and I'd love to know more about it. I mean, I'm, I'm going to go and Google it immediately. It's fascinating. It would. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, let's grab a question or a comment there. Thanks. Hi. Oh, um, yes. <laughs> good morning. My name's Maria, and um, I just, I, I recently read a news article that referenced a study that I wish I could remember the name of the study. Um, it Saying that children's relationship in terms of who, which parent they are closer to tend to be closer to the parent they see first after school. So when they come home, and because it's generally, as you mentioned, that women are still doing two times more the yeah. childcare at home, that the children come home after school, there's mum, and they just do a massive brain dump of their day. Right. So then when dad comes home and dad goes, hey, kids, how was your day? They go, it's fine. Right, they get a modified download. Yes. Yeah. So in, when you were speaking to parents for your research, did that come up much? Uh, yeah, you know, that actually was a piece of the UCLA study that I talked about that found the, you know, dad alone in the room configuration. They had 1,500 hours of video footage, and that was definitely something that they found, that the, whoever was home first and attended to be the mother got the full extended dance play, right, you know, extended dance play version of the day, and then, yeah. Whether that has some kind of enduring effect in terms of psychological bonds, I would be very skeptical about that. Like, for instance, there's a very well-developed literature talking about, you know, um, w the tensions, let's say, during adolescence, where it is very, it's been replicated over and over again, that opposite pairs tend to, you know, collide. It's exactly what, I'm sorry, or tend to be better, uh, you know, um, bonded. So it's exactly what you might think. Mothers and daughters clash more and fathers and sons clash more. So assuming a boy grew up seeing his mom a lot more, you know, um, but so did a girl. Um, <laughs> how do you account for that in adolescence, right? It's very hard. I mean, uh, again, you know, one-off studies, this is the problem with social science. There's a lot of it. They can find something once. You'll often then read the fine print and discover that there were four people in the sample. You know, it's like very... So you want to... So I don't... I don't feel equipped to weigh in necessarily on how... Which is exactly why uh, it can be very confusing re reading this literature if you're looking for advice as a parent. Which is why I was trying to do my damnedest in, my, in this book to, like, go for the things that had, like, the largest sample sizes and had been replicated. Because, right, it, there's always, like, a study that said that thing, you yeah. know? And you're stuck going... Great. So I'm, if I'm the second one through the door, am, am I paying a price for forever? You know, but I mean, ugh, I hate stuff like that. I really yeah. do. Let's have another one. Thank you very much for that. Thanks. Great. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed that talk. I also recommend to you the writing of Enid Blyton for parenting scripts. She says such wonderful things as, thank you, children. I can spare you for the afternoon. It's just wonderful <laughs> anthropological stuff. I, uh, but on a serious note, I, I um, am a mental health professional working with children and families. And one of the things I was wondering, I uh, wanted to get your opinion on, is the sort of information we give communities and families about the prevalence rates of mental health in children and adolescents 
the and because I think that this spikes our anxiety, my own included. And I wonder if you could sort of talk a little about that because I think what you're saying is incredibly healing for a lot of women and men and really important. But I'm also aware that we are bombarded with that deep anxiety about what if my child kills him or herself, develops a depressive disorder. And I think a lot of our anxiety is in some ways fueled by my profession's uh, communication on these topics. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, thank you for the work you do. That's, I mean, okay. It's a great question. And I haven't ever gotten it before, so I love you for that question. Um, uh, here's what I would say. Number one, something that you already know, which is that we're more attuned to questions of anxiety now. So obviously this is always like a hard thing to string apart epidemiologically. Have people been anxious for a long time and only now do we have the names for it? But that said, no, I'm gonna argue that there's been a spike too and that there's been more of it. And I, th and I would imagine that that spike is sort of in, gonna rise in tandem with the, or how should I say, an inverse proportion to what uh, the middle class's you know, economic prospects are. A lot of these anxieties, I think, are about how am I gonna keep my kid viable? How are they gonna, you know, will they have a toehold in the middle class? And if I don't do X, Y, and Z on their behalf, then all will be lost. I mean, I spoke to a mom who, she was lovely. She taught statistics at the University of Minnesota. Bright lady. And she was expressing acute anxiety to me about not having signed up her, kid, her daughter for a team sport. Because she knew from having read all this stuff that team sports for girls are great. They prevent drug use and early pregnancy. Her daughter was four. Now imagine the anxiety level that that mom is walking around with. And like, do we think that her kid is going to be, you know, attuned to those vibrations? Yes, we do, right? Also, I think that in our attempts to sort of um, create these perfect environments for our kids and to create perfect children, I, I'm sure you're aware of this kind of emergent body of literature that shows that it's kind of backfiring on us, that you know, kids aren't learning resilience as well if you're just there to be their valet at every stage. So I wonder also, I would love to almost throw the question back at you and say, are you seeing less resilience among these kids because no one is allowing them to get knocked on their ass, you know? I mean, that's my question. Do you want to I... respond? And I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, and he's controversial in some of his arguments, but John Giardini in Adelaide is a child psychiatrist who has spoken very eloquently about um, the need to let young people, children and adolescents, grapple with the existential angst. Yeah. Just give them that space. Don't name it as anxiety or depression. Right there's an aspect of needing to give them that space to process this stuff, if you'd like to respond to. I absolutely agree with you, and the research is, is showing that very strongly, particularly in young people. The experience of failure is something that is often alien to them. Right. You know, their tolerance for frustration is, is very poor. And boredom, and, right? <laughs> absolutely, and yeah. all that that entails. So I think that... But I, th I think you're quite right. It's that kind of balance between sort of wanting them to, as you said, put a, have a toehold in the middle class and be successful, but on the other hand, you know, feeling fearful when they fail or they're distressed. And we've almost not... Uh, we've become so anxious about negative emotionality in children and adolescents anyway totally. that we can't bear any of it. And I think there's something going on in those two things happening. I, I really enjoyed that. Thank, Thank, you. You. Thank you. I'm going to grab two in a row, if that's OK. Together. 
Uh, no, <laughs> you can if you want. Uh, but just to, to, two comments or questions in a row. Sure. So um, I'm also of the um, mental health care. I'm a child and adolescent psychologist and a parent of three. And I didn't bring my kids because I always get um, valued on the sort of parent I am because I do this kind of work. Yep. But I think... Um, what I see in my clinic is just a, a total discomfort of emotions in general. If you have happiness as your goal, you may as well take ecstasy, right? <laughs> like, seriously. I mean, it's not a goal, it's a feeling, and feelings are tides, it's an emotion. They come and go like the tides do. There is as much living and vitality and connection in sorrow and loss and fear and anguish as there is in happiness, but our generation feel so scared of our children feeling any negative emotion that we have to do something to quickly get it away because it triggers our own stuff. Mm. You know, so we, we really don't, we're really losing this connection with emotions. And what I try to help parents with is to sort of say all emotions are acceptable. You know, they're all made by the limbic system. They're all in our heads. That's just a natural part of life. You know, my parents, my grandparents certainly didn't expect childhood to be happy. They expected happy moments and sad moments and scary moments, but it wasn't all supposed to be happy. Um, I, I salute that. And, I, I, and, and that is Thank the subject you. of chapter six of my book. So, <laughs> I mean, you, and, but, but I really, I have a few things to say about that. Number one, happiness as an expectation is a 20th century phenomenon. We finally, you know, we, we started living high enough up on Maslow's hierarchy of needs that we all started to aspire to happiness for the first time, as if it's our God-given right, right? But it's not going to be for every... I mean, not everybody is going to be capable of happiness. Is that quest for self-fulfillment and self-realisation and, and happiness, is that at fundamental odds with parenting, perhaps? Oh, well, you know, that's an interesting... We can get there in a sec. Yes. I mean, no, I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's not yes, at odds. No. It's, <laughs> it's the wrong question. It's like what I said to you. It's like that Indiana Jones moment. We've been digging in the wrong place. I don't think that's what you're looking for as a parent. I think you're looking for other things. Let me just say, we didn't become obsessed with you know, our kids' happiness also, at least in my country, until the 70s, right? That was the free-to-be-you-and-me era, right. But um, speaking more generally, happiness is a very thin emotion. You know, it's brief, it's ephemeral, it's like you eat a Twix bar and you feel really great and wow, that's fabulous, and then what? Whereas, you know, there's no complexity in having eaten a Twix, right. Whereas, you know, if you are joy, is being deeply bonded to somebody and being so bonded to them that you are terrified of losing them. That like you can't even think about how much you love them without grieving. It's in fact, it's, uh, one of my favorite psychiatrists of all time, George Valiant wrote, the joy is grief inside out. And so, and this to me is what I think parenting is. And this is what I think the goal of life is too. It's complexity. It's living life in all of its, you know, forms and variations. So the topography of your life as a parent is quite varied. And that finally, at long last, is what the most recent US study actually said about parenting and the effects of kids on parents. It finally said that parents recruit from both from a bigger emotional range, bigger, more highs and more lows. And that, personally, is a much more appealing goal to me than, as you point out, you know, ecstasy. I mean, or dropping X. Yeah, right. Thank you very much for that. We'll take two, and I'll get you to hold your comment, and we'll grab the, these two. And you, there's still time, if you'd like to make your way to a mic, please do. There's been a deficit on this side. I so. know. <laughs> it's like a ship that's listening. Yeah. <laughs> 
Thank you. Um, hi, Jennifer. I just wanted to say, first of all, that quote about not having the bathroom to myself since October, I experienced that this morning with my four-year-old, so um, that really spoke to me. I think my question's, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot more simple. Um, in my mother's generation and, and my mother-in-law's generation, I, the whole idea of um, raising a child through a village, that, that really, you know, speaks a lot to me. But then I became a mother and it was so insular and so secluded and um, I just felt so isolated. At, I couldn't help but think that it's due to modern society. Um, the way things are, I mean, I don't know my neighbours next door while well, my mother-in-law was telling me, oh, yeah, you know, Joy was just right two doors down the road and, and wasn't just, you know, picking up a cup of sugar from her but sharing time with her kids and, and, and you know, play dates that were that easy. It, things are just so much more difficult in that respect. And do you find that because of that, we're not speaking to each other, books like what you showed have their spot in society right now. Mm. Yes, mm. and I think it's a terrific comment and I spend a lot of time talking about loneliness and social isolation. I didn't have time for, to talk about it here. It's such a crucial point. It's huge. And I can give some examples. You were talking about neighbors. Robert Putnam is the preeminent sociologist in the United States who's written about this, and I'm sure that his book got traction here when it came out, called Bowling Alone. The amount of interaction we have with our neighbors has dropped by about a third over the last, like, three decades or so. So, I mean, the pop-in, as Seinfeld would say, we don't do it anymore. We don't do the pop-in. You can't just drop, right? That's one thing. Sprawl is another, right? Mm. You know, houses are further apart. We are terrified about sending our kids outside to go biking, so you don't, they don't have the fellowship of other children. We don't have the fellowship of other mothers for this very reason. And also, some of it's for a good reason. Moms are working, right? We, we salute progress. If they want to go out and be in the office, that's okay. But it doesn't explain why we're not having dinner with our neighbors. It doesn't, ex you know, the, the sprawl is something different. Um, also, and Dr. Spock actually wrote this. He said, the relationship between mother and child was never intended to be quite so exclusive. And that is really powerful. Mm -hmm. And here's something else for you to know. Um, it, this is, I'm sure it's true here. In the US, if you and your husband both have a college degree, the odds of your living within 30 miles of your um, in-laws or your folks goes down to like 9%. No, I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's some minuscule number. So the, the most, you know, the kind of cheapest and best form of babysitting and community available isn't. Yes. So everything you say, so think about how much pressure also that puts on a marriage. Because then it's just you two. You know, I mean, so that, I mean, that makes things really tense too. Mm. Thanks um, for your comment. That's a great comment. I'm going to take these two and I'm going to get you to hold your comment. <laughs> Because I'm keen to get as many uh, of you involved as possible. We've only got a few more minutes left. Thank you. Natasha, Jennifer, I um, can't wait to read the book. I'm a sexologist in Sydney and I see so often the most common problem that presents is desire discrepancy. And Natasha knows this, um, that I've been interviewed on um, Radio National about my um, research in male sexual desire. And for all the women in the audience that are sick of hearing about pink Viagra, it's not about <laughs> arousal, ladies, it's about desire in our heads, and we all know that. But the spotlight for so long has been on women's desire, not on men's. And I think it's quite fascinating because it goes back to the fellow that first spoke this morning about postnatal um, depression with men. And even though it's early days with the research, what it's showing is that men that become fathers when they're older, stress and fatigue very much comes to the fore in desire. And what I suspect 
and I see this in clinical practice, is that men, um, you know, post-GFC and all the rest of it, do become very stressed and do become very fatigued. And some men, sure, they want sex 24-7, but not all men. And it plays out in the relationship in a big way. A lot of men um, become very withdrawn, very anxious, you know, indeed borderline depression, et cetera, et cetera. But the other thing that I want to comment on and pick up on your book is um, you'd be well aware of Esther Perel Mm -hmm. in New York, who's done this great work on the paradox between eroticism and domesticity. And what she says, and I totally endorse this, is that the Western world couples are so child-centric to the point where, and this is what I see in practice, couples do not put enough emphasis on couple time. And this is the most critical thing. It's not about sex. It's not about the children. It's not about running Johnny and Mary around from this party to that party and that sporting commitment from this to that. And then, oh, by the way, we've got to fit in the in-laws and we've got to do this and we've got to socialise. They get to Sunday night and they think, shit, sugar Maloney, where's the couple time? And this is the most critical thing that I think in the Western world we've neglected. You know, we all fit in in the pie. We fit in meat time we fit in that activity that activity that activity but no couple time thank you hold thought (laughs) and final question thank you uh thank you so much for your presentation today jennifer um i was hoping that you could comment on the trend of people becoming parents at an older age yes and um how uh especially in my community of peers including myself um that kind of leads to the possibility of only having single children whereas us and everyone before us all came from much larger families. Yeah. So how that effect of um, having older parents and possibly only having one child, which might be related to this paradox, um, but how that single child now navigates the world um, without having that sort of what has always been a typical sibling interaction and how that, how that socialization affects mm. them. That seems so key, doesn't it? Because kids form their own community independent of their parents then. It's Thank totally you. true. Thank you. Um, I wish it were um, my area of expertise. I'll tell you the things that I do know. If you're a college-educated woman in the United States, the average age of first birth for you is 30.3 years old. So that's nationwide. So now think about all the coasts in like places like New York and LA and Boston and you know all the big cities. It's much older. So you're right. And singletons, there's definitely more only children now. I I can't, I can't remember the latest U.S. Census data on it. I th- I want I I have it in my book actually. But I mean, it's something like you know, 22 percent maybe, or and in third and maybe 30 percent in cities. And I don't think we know the answer. I think we know how it affects parents in that you are um, a cruise director for one. You know, there's a lot of pressure on you mm. to entertain your kid because there's no siblings, right? So there is, uh, uh, in that sense, it becomes very difficult. Um, how it will play out in the future is something that I'd be interested to know. I would be, but just bear in mind though, there were other eras when, I mean, think about Anna Karenina. I can't remember how old he was when he was courting. I mean, you know, he became a, a father of what, 48? I mean, the, 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 there were older fathers for generations and, you know, other cultures and at other times. I don't think it's so weird. I mean, it's weird for women maybe, but it's, I think older parents, we've seen precedents for this before. In the last minute that we've got, um, I, and we might pick up, get to pick up on your point, but I, I just want to leave the audience with a sense of what they can do next. I mean, we've talked about, we've alluded to how do we 
how do we allow parents to allow their children to be bored? Right. So that then they can become innovators in their own way. Right. And create entertainment for themselves. Yep. Or what, what have you learnt? Uh, maybe in terms of your own parenting. Sure. Or uh, as you distill all these stresses about what will make a difference? It's a great question. I think Short um, of a revolution, but right. just what, <laughs> what individual parents can do to shift the dynamic in chores. their own lives. Give your kids chores. They lost their function. They've lost their... Uh, they, seriously, and kids want to be helpful. And if they've lost their economic role, there is a way for them to still have a part of the household economy, right? Which is make them do stuff. Make them tolerate boredom. Right, and that's hugely important because kids don't know how to tolerate it. And it's easier on parents if they can actually exhale and say, I'm sorry, you know what? I'm doing something else. That's okay to say. It really, like nothing will happen. No bad will come of it. We were all put in play pens. We're all okay. You know, like we were totally blown off and we're fine. So I, I really think that that is the other thing. Boredom is good. Yay, boredom. That's my, uh, um, and I see that we're out of time, but I, if I, I, I would squeeze in one other thing. Moment to moment, we find parenting very stressful. When we look back on it, there is nothing we love more and nothing we think is better. But there is a big difference between our experiencing self and our rem remembering self. These are terms coined by Danny Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winning guy I was talking about earlier. What I say to parents now is optimize your remembering self. Your kid might be driving you crazy in the moment. Take a picture of your kid, write down every funny thing that kid says, write down, take every beautiful video you can and relive them at night with your husband or your, you know, your partner or your wife. Do whatever you can because that's who we are. We are actually our remembering selves. We really, we are the sum of our memories. So to the extent that you can put all these stuff in boxes and you can write them down in journals, please do. I mean, because that's, that's the whole ball game, you know, so. And with that, Lex, thank you. Jennifer Senior, well done.